All right, we are back. A couple weeks back, or maybe it was last week, I'm not really sure, we talked about the possibility of just doing an extensive reading of a worthy book. The worthy book in question was, and is, A Bright Shining Lie, John Paul Van, and America in Vietnam. It was a national bestseller, circa 1986. It's written by Neil Sheehan, who knew a great deal about which he wrote having originally been sent to Vietnam in, like, 1962. At that time, Vietnam was not really a household word. I think at one point in the book, Sheehan mentions that in the year 1960, for example, the word Vietnam only appeared in Time magazine six times during the whole year. And most of us in America, when we think about the Vietnam War, really start in, like, 1964 with the Gulf of Tonkin incident, or 1965, when major deployments were made of Americans to that Southeast Asian country. At its peak in 1968-1969, there were well over 500,000 Americans in Vietnam. By the way, we achieved none of our stated objectives in going into that country. And despite the astonishing use of American military hardware and bombs and bullets. It's pretty much indisputable that we lost the war. We did not lose it on the battlefield. But since the government we were supposedly supporting ignominiously and completely fell by 1975, it's really all kind of nitpicking. We fought a war in Vietnam. We lost. It's a terrible thing to contemplate the 55,000 Americans who died. Several multiples of that, of course, were lost among the army and civilians of the South. And probably a multiple of that was lost by forces loyal to Ho Chi Minh's North Vietnam. To many of you listening, this will still be um, a very deep wound. It's a tragedy no matter how you look at it. For someone like myself, six decades and change in age, the whole conflict was, back in the 1960s, something of a mystery. I can't resist telling an anecdote, which I've told before, but what better time than now, about something that happened when I was in high school in the late 1960s. As you know, or should know, there was a great deal of opposition to the war in Vietnam. Protests were being held. And I mean large protests were being held. And yet there was something of a PR blitz on the other side telling us that these protesters were wrong. This was an honorable cause, and we had a good shot at winning. In the midst of the controversy, somebody sent to my high school a military man. Or maybe he was a reservist. I don't know, but he came as a spokesman, in essence, for the Pentagon and the Johnson administration. Maybe it was Nixon. I'm not quite sure on the timing. I suspect, in fact, it was probably the first year of Richard Nixon, 1969. The military man gave us a bit of a song and dance about what was going on over there and then asked for questions. I had a question I asked at, I think, about age 16. Why is it we're over there in Vietnam taking a piece of land and then abandoning it so that the forces opposing us, the Viet Cong, etc., would then move back into where we were, at which point we might go in and try and take it again? This wasn't how we operated in World War II. So I asked, basically, what the deal was. 
The military man was very smug in his reply. He nodded. Well, he said, this is an insurgency over there. We are fighting an entirely different kind of war and assured me that they knew what they were doing. The opinion I formulated at the time was that mm, this thing is raging out of control and they don't know what they're doing. If you fast forward now, about four decades, we can come to the point where a look back at the Vietnam War was made by the then Defense Secretary. He may have just recently left, I'm not sure, Robert McNamara. He was removed in 1968 and replaced by Clark Clifford. McNamara had come to realize by the time he was removed from his office in the Pentagon as Secretary of Defense that this thing wasn't looking so good. In his conclusion, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, and I presume perhaps some liberated documents, although back then McNamara should have certainly had access to anything and everything out there, but he looked back and concluded two things. A, the war was raging out of control, and B, we didn't know what we were doing. I got to tell you, I was really struck by those conclusions of Robert McNamara, since they were the conclusions I came to at age 16. I do stress in saying that that doesn't make me any kind of genius. It was pretty clear to a lot of people when you weighed the data that something was wrong. Americans were to learn in a big way a great deal about the something that was wrong in 1970 when a man named Daniel Ellsberg released a top-secret study conducted by the Pentagon of how we got into the mess in Vietnam. It was to be called the Pentagon Papers, and it ignited a political firestorm in the nation. Neil Sheehan, when he wrote this book, A Bright Shining Lie, had the advantage of being able to talk at great length with Daniel Ellsberg and literally hundreds of others. Turns out the man in the title, John Paul Van, was a good friend of Daniel Ellsberg and lots of men in uniform. And while I, high, and while I highly recommend this book and what you will learn in reading it about John Paul Van and American Vietnam, for our examination of the book today, I think we should go to an earlier chapter describing events in the 1950s. If you've never heard the name Edward Lansdale, dear listener, um, you should get acquainted with Colonel Lansdale. Actually, I'm not even sure that he was a real colonel. He worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. He held the military title of colonel, but as I say, I'm not sure that he really was one. And by way of background, we should note something that we did not know until Daniel Ellsberg came to release the Pentagon Papers, which was that the end of World War II, after the Japanese had invaded Indochina, which was controlled by France, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, the future president of North Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh, asked America to help him, to help him form an independent nation. Unfortunately for Uncle Ho, among the deals that were cut among the Allies, the British, the Americans, the French, such as they were, and the Russians, were that uh, France was going to be allowed to go back into Indochina. Perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned the Russians because the Russians actually weren't too keen on that idea. But the British, French, and Americans seemed to agree that that's what we were going to let happen. For years, Ho Chi Minh had lived out of Vietnam. He was in Paris at the end of World War I and tried to attend the peace talks as a representative of Vietnam. He was ignored. 
While in Paris, he tried to form alliances with any group that would take the position that the French needed to get out of Indochina and the nations needed to become independent. And although Ho Chi Minh was dabbling with all sorts of socialist, communists, and shall we say idealistic political groups, the only one among these many competing factions that took the position that Vietnam should be an independent nation were the Soviet-led communists. After weighing all the options, Ho Chi Minh decided, well, this is my group. So as you might well imagine, in 1945, when Ho Chi Minh was emerging as the clear favorite to be the political leader of this independent nation, some in the West were none too keen on him because of these communist connections. It seemed clear with the benefit of hindsight that Ho Chi Minh was a nationalist first and a communist second. As the Western powers were deciding what to do with Vietnam in the 1950s, and in this case we're talking about like 1955, well, it was clear that the French were on their way out. They'd suffered a catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, and it was clear they could no longer hold a grip on the country. Unfortunately for those with aspirations of Vietnamese independence, the United States decided to step in at that point. Now, some of the details of what our stepping in uh, entailed is outlined in Book 2 of A Bright Shining Lie. The title is Antecedents to a Confrontation, and I would like to read some excerpts from it. This chapter starts with the president of Vietnam, Ngo Dinh Diem, was taken out of the presidential palace in Saigon and flown out to the countryside. The chapter starts with Jim marveling over the fact that the crowds, which were huge, had in, in their enthusiasm swarmed him and scuffed his shiny black shoes. Noted Neil Sheehan, Diem had been reluctant to go, content to govern from his office in the palace. Now he was glad he had listened to Edward Lansdale and the Americans around Lansdale. Everett Bumgardner, a Virginian like John Paul Van from a small town of Woodstock on the western edge of the Shenandoah Valley, began working his trade of propaganda and psychological warfare in Vietnam in the mid-1950s as a photojournalist for the U.S. Information Service. The region they flew, President Jim Tu, was one where Ho Chi Minh's Viet Minh guerrillas had held pretty much undisturbed since the first years of the First War, that first war being what ensued after 1945 against the French. Noted Neil Sheehan, the CIA pilots had to put the old twin-engine C-47 down in an open field. The Viet Minh had destroyed the local airstrip. When Jim emerged, the peasants overwhelmed his guards and almost trampled this short, plump figure dressed in the correct attire for senior officials, a white linen suit and a black tie. In their eagerness to see him and to touch his hand, some of the peasants accidentally stepped on his shod feet with their bare ones, imprinting the evidence of this frenzied welcome, which he was now regarding in happy amazement. Although Jim's brother and chief political advisor, No Din Nu, had sent organizers to this town of Tui Hoi several days earlier to arrange a reception, no one in Saigon had expected anything like this. There were at least 50,000 and possibly 100,000 people. The size of the crowd astonished Baumgartner. Jim gave a speech on the evils of communism and attacked Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh as puppets of the Russians and the Chinese. The crowd shouted its approval and applauded each time he paused after making a point. 
Mumgardner photographed the enthusiastic faces and took notes for a story to accompany the pictures in Free World, a magazine published and distributed free by USIS in special editions in Vietnamese and the languages of other non-communist countries of Asia. USIS also made his photograph and stories available to friendly newspaper editors in Vietnam and elsewhere around the world. Baumgartner was convinced that he and other Americans in Vietnam would be able to promote Diem into a national hero to compete with the leaders of the other side. Edward Lansdale intended to turn Diem into another Ramon Magsese, the Filipino paragon of an anti-communist and progressive Asian leader, and to transform South Vietnam into another Philippines of the mid-1950s, the model of the kind of working democracy the American empire preferred to foster in Asia. The men who ran the American imperial system, men like Dean Acheson, who had been Truman's principal secretary of state, and the Dulles brothers in the Eisenhower administration, John Foster at the State Department and Allen at the CIA, were not naive enough to think they could export democracy to every nation on earth. Their strategy was to organize the entire non-communist world into a network of countries allied with or dependent on the United States. They wanted a tranquil array of nations protected by American military power, recognizing American leadership in international affairs, and integrated into an economic order where the dollar was the main currency of exchange and American business was preeminent. The United States did not seek colonies as such. Having overt colonies was not acceptable to the American political conscience. Americans were convinced that their imperial system did not victimize foreign peoples. Enlightened self-interest was the sole national egotism to which Americans would admit. Americans perceived their order as a new and benevolent form of international guidance. Instead of formal colonies, the United States sought local governments amenable to American wishes and where possible subject to indirect control from behind the scenes. Communists and other radicals claimed that this American imperial system was a more insidious form of colonialism than the old European variety. They termed it neocolonialism. Most Americans in the 1950s and early 60s were untroubled by the accusation. They viewed the communists as the true practitioners of neocolonialism. Especially Asian communists were, by American definition, traitors to their homelands. They were converts to the alien European philosophy of Marxism-Leninism and agents agents of foreign, i.e. Soviet, power. Edward Lansdale likened Ho Chi Minh to Benedict Arnold. Viewed from the American perspective... The Philippines of 1954 was the best of surrogates. The islands had been an American colony until 1946, when the Philippines had celebrated its Independence Day. In exchange for the grant of independence, the U.S. had received a 99-year lease on 23 military bases, including the important naval station of Subic Bay and Clark Air Base. The Philippines' military and intelligence services continued to function as auxiliaries to the American ones. The achievement in the Philippines had been in jeopardy a few years before. Nourished by peasant discontent with landlordism and by resentment in the countryside, the communist-led Hook Balahop Rebellion had grown to formidable proportions by the end of 1940. The Hooks were able to field about 15,000 guerrillas and to claim another million sympathizers. Mayors and police chiefs all over the main island of Luzon were in collusion with the Hooks out of fear or genuine sympathy. The Philippine army and constabulatory were ineffective and elections were a jest of fraud and intimidation, which lent logic to the Huck slogan that the way to change the government was with bullets, not ballots. 
It was at a time of this crisis when men's reputations were made or broken. Edward Lansdale made his. He was the catalyst and the behind-the-scenes manager of the rescue operation. He recognized in Ramon Magsaysay precisely the kind of honest and charismatic leader needed to rally those Filipinos who did not want a communist government, but who were now leaderless and adrift. In 1950, when the job was hardly sought after, with the Huck Rebellion at its height, Magsaysay had resigned his seat in the Philippines' House of Representatives to accept appointment as Secretary of Defense. He was an extrovert with abundant, if frequently ill-directed energy, an inquisitive mind that tended to run off in tangents, and a social conscience. He needed a brain trust to organize him. Edward Lansdale became the brain trust. He had developed some practical ideas on how to suppress the rebellion from a previous tour in the islands as an Air Force intelligence officer assigned to study the hooks. He returned to the Philippines on detail to the CIA. With Lansdale to coach him, Magsaysay created an excellent intelligence service and reformed the army. He fired lazy and corrupt officers and promoted those who could lead and fight and who understood the importance of convincing the population that the military was their protector and not their despoiler. Skipping ahead, by 1953, the rebellion was broken. The guerrillas reduced to small bands being swept up in, in police actions. Magsaysay was elected president of the Philippines the same year. Edward Lansdale returned to CIA headquarters in Washington as a big man. Lansdale became the agency's expert on guerrilla warfare and counter-subversion. He also acquired something more important in government than recognized expertise, a mystique, a reputation for being able to perform miracles. He was sent to Vietnam amid the despair after the fall of Dien Bien Phu in May of 1954. At a meeting in Washington four months earlier, when it had been initially been decided that he would go to Saigon, he had asked John Foster Dulles what he was to do there. The Secretary of State told him, do what you did in the Philippines. Lansdale was given the special privilege government's grant to miracle workers. He was to cooperate with, but to be independent of the U.S. ambassador and the general in charge of the military assistance group. He was to have his own team. He was to report directly to Washington through CIA channels. By the time the French agreed to surrender the North to the Viet Minh at the conclusion of the Geneva Conference in 1954, Lansdale had decided on concrete steps to attain the goal of repeating his accomplishment in the Philippines. He would do all he could to strengthen the position of Diem for the nation-building task in South Vietnam. The CIA had maneuvered Bao Dai, the king of Vietnam, basically, into offering the prime ministership to Diem in that June of 1954. Although the former Vietnamese emperor had retreated to the safety of the Riviera, he was still the head of state. Diem's appointment was announced the day he landed in Saigon, five weeks after Lansdale and two weeks before the settlement at Geneva. The Eisenhower administration was in a hurry to find a Vietnamese leader whom it could trust now that, the, now that American power would have to move directly into Vietnam and take over from the demoralized French. There were not many candidates from among whom to choose, and Diem seemed the best. His ardent Catholicism gave him impeccably anti-communist credentials with Americans. Ed Baumgarter recalled that trip to the countryside. It was just one of the many endeavors that Edward Lansdale and those Americans helping him conceived to turn Diem into another American-style leader like Meg Saysay and South Vietnam into a Philippines of the mid-1950s. Baumgarter had also arrived in the months right after Dien Bien Phu. 
While he was not a member of Lansdale's team, he saw a great deal of him because the USIS staff in Vietnam was under instructions to assist Landale and to do so enthusiastically. Baumgartner noticed that the Vietnamese respected Lansdale because he cared about them. He was one of the few Americans who could speak the language of guerrillas and counter-guerrilla warfare, and he was a man of action who got things done. If you wanted to know what was happening, or you needed to know something out of the ordinary, you went to Lansdale, or one of his senior team members like Lucien Conin, the French-born roughneck, then a CIA agent posing as an army major. Lou Conin had been brought back to Indochina from Germany, where he'd been running undercover agents out of East European countries. Lansdale had wanted him because Conin was the only former OSS officer still on active duty who had fought against the Japanese in Indochina with a commando of French and Vietnamese colonial troops. It should be noted that while in Vietnam, Edward Lansdale took control of Operation Exodus, which was the movement to the south of 900,000 refugees from North Vietnam, beginning in the summer of 1954. This migration of almost a million people from soon-to-be communist North Vietnam was an event of the greatest significance for Diem's future and for the future of South Vietnam. Lansdale stimulated it. He propelled everyone else into concerted action. Diem had attempted to set up a refugee organization and admired in committee meetings. The French and U.S. embassies had dawdled. Lansdale drew up a plan. He got Diem, the U.S. military, and the French working together, arranged for the United States Navy to provide a 7th Fleet Amphibious Task Force for sea evacuations, and it brought down more than a third of the refugees. I've seen estimates elsewhere, by the way, that the U.S. Navy brought down 600,000 people. And had the French award Civil Air Transport, a CIA airline run by General Claire Chenault from Taiwan, a profitable contract to assist in the air evacuation. Evidently, Civil Air Transport and others brought down an additional several hundred thousand people from the north. A great many of them were Catholics in the predominantly Buddhist country. Lansdale took measures to see that those Catholics who were undecided had their minds made up for them. Diem conferred with the Catholic bishops, and priests began to urge their peasant parishioners to flee. One favorite sermon was that the Blessed Virgin had gone south and they had to follow her. Lansdale had his team launch a black propaganda campaign in the North to portray forthcoming conditions under Viet Minh rule as grimly as possible. His men distributed leaflets carefully forged to make it appear that they had been issued by Ho's revolutionary government. Noted Vietnamese astrologers were hired to write predictions about coming disasters to certain Viet Minh leaders and undertakings. Noted Neil Sheehan, the work of Lansdale during the pivotal years of 1954-1955 proved that one man and his vision can make a difference in history. Without him, the American venture in Vietnam would have foundered at the onset. Diem might have been Washington's choice in Saigon, but he could not have survived without Lansdale at his side. The French were no longer an alternative. Jumping ahead a little bit, Neil Sheehan notes that Lansdale prevented the conflict in Vietnam from ending with a total victory by Ho Chi Minh and his followers in 1956 or sooner had the French abdicated their role before then. South Vietnam, it can truly be said, was the creation of Edward Lansdale. He masterminded the campaign that began in the spring of 1955 to crush the French-subsidized armies of two religious sects, 
the Kao Dai, and Hoa Hao, and the troops of the Bin Shen Organized Crime Society. Originally a band of river pirates, the Bien Shin had purchased a franchise on the rackets in Saigon and had been given control of the police in exchange for suppressing Viet Minh terrorism in the city. It should be noted that contrary to the official U.S. government presence in Vietnam, the presence of General J. Lawton Lightning Joe Collins, who was the new ambassador who arrived in the fall of 1954, Collins told Diem to proceed slowly and to compromise with the sex. Lansdale urged Diem to follow his own inclination and smash them all and to assert the authority of the central government, using bribes and trickery to neutralize some of the sect leaders and force to snuff out those who could not be bribed or tricked. Collins decided that Ed Lansdale was a romantic visionary and, and no Dien Jim was a crank. He flew back to Washington in April of 55 and almost persuaded John Foster Dulles to get rid of both Lansdale and Jim and to resume cooperation with the French, who despised Jim and Lansdale and, were encur- and who were encouraging their sex and the Bin Shin to resist. This took the renowned Frank Wisner, Lansdale's boss at the CIA's Chief of Clandestine Operations, to the meeting with Collins and his brother, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Collins said Lansdale was mad in claiming they could build a stable government around Jim in South Vietnam. Jim had absolutely no ability to govern and was alienating everyone. Frank Wisner spoke up in Lansdale's defense. Afterwards, he recalled thinking just before he raised his voice that he knew next to nothing about Vietnam and a little more about Asia. But Americans had succeeded elsewhere. Why shouldn't they succeed in Vietnam too? Here's the part I like. John Foster Dulles did not share Frank Wisner's faith. He sent a cable to the embassy on April 27, 1955, instructing the acting chief of mission to find another prime minister for the Saigon government. The next day, before the embassy could start putting the instructions into effect, Jim asked Lansdale about the message. He had heard about Dulles's decision from his embassy in Washington. Lansdale assured him that whatever he might have heard, Vietnam still needed him, and the United States was behind him. He persuaded Jim to order a counterattack that afternoon against the Bin Chien, who had started mortaring the palace and shooting at the soldiers of the Vietnamese National Army to try and intimidate Jim. The 2,500 troops of the Organized Crime Society were no match for the battalions Lansdale had arrayed on Diem's side with Conin's assistance once the battle began in earnest. The Bin Chien in central Saigon were broken in nine hours and fled to the Chinese suburb of Cholon. With the Bin Shen defeated, the religious sects did not appear as formidable as before. John Foster Dulles quickly countermanded his instructions. So it's worth pausing to note the Secretary of State and agents of the Central Intelligence Agency put in place the government of South Vietnam that was to prove so incapable of ruling, so corrupt, and such a disaster in every way that subsequent Americans in Vietnam, specifically Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge in 1963, decided to look the other way while a group of Vietnamese generals captured and assassinated President Jim and his brother. Now it is true that we're talking about the ambassador. I suppose we're talking about a representative of the executive branch of government, in theory, elected by you and me, the citizenry. And, you know, looking back at the Eisenhower administration, John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State deciding who was going to be president in in Vietnam or 
at least pushing things in that direction. But clearly, in this case, representatives of what have to be considered the deep state were really directing the course of action in Vietnam. For is that not what Edward Lansdale of the Central Intelligence Agency represents? Influential, powerful people, America's power elite, who are senior to our elected officials or those who happen to be holding office at a given time. This is a topic for future discussions, I think, but can we not consider individuals such as Alan Dulles, John Foster Dulles, Averill Harriman, who was to later be involved in the Paris peace talks concerning Vietnam. People like former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, he was Secretary of State under Truman, as mentioned in this narrative, but served in a council of, quote, wise men, unquote, advising Lyndon Johnson as to how he might best direct this fiasco of a war in Vietnam. Doesn't someone like Dean Acheson personify the kind of thing we're talking about in the deep state? Well, we think you can make the case that he does. It's worth noting that what you set up by way of illusion, we might also argue that what is set up sometimes by virtue of public relations takes on a life of its own. In Vietnam, people lied about what was going on over in the country. They lied about everything. They lied about their chances of victory. They lied about the reliability of the Saigon government. They lied and they lied some more. But influential people chose to believe the nonsense. I suppose in many cases this was wishful thinking. When you look at the amount of money that was spent during the course of the Vietnam War, you do have to take a step back and wonder about Dwight Eisenhower's military-industrial complex. The corporations engaged to supply the material used in that war did very well. It's the American public at large that gained no material benefit. When it comes to looking at the difference between reality and appearances, I'd like to cite as an example what Ev Baumgartner was to realize in a moment of clarity looking back on that day in 1955 when they flew Jim out to the countryside. Baumgartner understood how erroneously they had interpreted the reception the president received. Baumgartner remembered that the crowd at the soccer field did not seem to be paying much attention to what Jim was saying when they cheered and applauded. The faces smiled, the voices shouted, but the eyes were vacant. The truth came to him. The crowd had not been even listening to Diem. The whole thing had simply been a holiday for the peasants and the townspeople. They had attended enough Viet Minh rallies during the first war to know that when the cadres in the crowd gave the signal, they were supposed to cheer and applaud. The organizers, whom Diem's brother knew had sent ahead, had been in the crowd giving similar signals. The peasants responded obligingly. Diem was not well known to ordinary Vietnamese then, and the peasants and provincial townsfolk could not have had even the faintest idea who he was. They were bored, extremely bored, by all the years of isolation from the outside world. They were full of joy that the war was over. The landings of a plane, a real airplane, with an exalted visitor to speak to them was a marvelous thrill and an occasion for a celebration. They would have run out and nearly trampled Jim to death had he been the Prime Minister of Nepal. And I think I'm going to leave it there. I do recommend, dear listener, for more information, to take a gander at Neil Sheehan's book, and to noodle around on the web, you can find interviews with 
Edward Lansdale, which, as you might imagine, are a bit self-serving. But nevertheless, chock-a-block with information which corroborates what Neil Sheehan had to say. You might also want to take a look at what one Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty had to say about Lansdale in Vietnam, but that is definitely a subject for another day's discussion. Prouty has things to say in his books which are jaw-dropping, to say the least. At a conference once in Washington, D.C., I had a chance to sit across from Colonel Prouty as he told tales, and he struck me as an entirely credible individual, even more so now, based on some reading I've done in the last couple decades, than he did then, and we're just going to leave it there. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your faithful servant and a guy trying to get to the bottom of all this after so many years, Douglas Everett. And you know, I don't think I've ever taken a half hour just to kind of read from a book, but something we might want to do again in the future, if you've got the right book. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see ya. We met as so